0: On the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
1: It's that time of the year again. Time to lock the doors and latch the windows, turn on the lights and pretend that we are out. Before the dreaded trick-or-treaters start knocking on the door. It's everyone.
0: Showcasing beloved favorites and forgotten gems, this is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
1: Can somebody please quieten those wolves? They'll scare my cat. Yes, from Roundsgate Kent, England, it's a very warm welcome to a special Halloween edition of the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast's archive show. I am your host, Jason Drury, podcaster, producer and proud member of the IFMCA. Thank you very much for joining us once again on the show. Before we start, delving into some special Halloween-related material, I must not forget to say a big hello to our... Cinematic Sound Radio Patreons, and if you want to join the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast Patreon, then please head over to patreoncom slash Radio. Also, if you dare, I would really like if you could rate and review the show. I very much like to read what you think of the show. Surprisingly, and I may even read a review out on the show at a later date to be specified. Now, as I was saying, this is a special halloween theme show from the archive well as eric woods has been busy the last few weeks filming airplanes for work purposes i should add somebody had to do one for the station so i decided to stand up to the plate or crucial prefer and take one for the team however i did have some help for my good friend renowned film visit blogger john mansell who literally threw a script at me, leaving a mark on my forehead saying, this is your Halloween script, if you like it or not. After cleaning up the blood from the floor, looking at it, I thought it was a great script and decided to use it on this special show. So from this point on, most of the words you will be hearing are from the pen or keyboard of John Mansell with some additional material by me. Get it? So without further ado, as I was saying before I was interrupted by Tim and my theme music, it's all Hallow Eve, a time when ghosts, ghoulies, vampires, zombies, werewolves and other unmentionables come out of hiding. Leave their graves, coffin, and wherever else they might be hiding, and walk the earth again amongst the living. Hang on, I forgot the mummies. I always forget the mummies, not no not your mummy, I mean mummies, you know. The guys and gals in bandages that rise up to average grave robbers and, and always seem to mistake one of the stars in the cast for a long lost love like Rachel Weiss in the, M- the Mummy. It's also time when candy companies make most of their cash with everyone buying the stuff like it's going out of fashion. It's a time of year that filmmakers also love and have committed many stories to celluloid that have taken place on and around Halloween. At the end of October, the nights are darker, the pumpkins seem more menacing, the leaves are a lot browner and make a lot more noise. And a simple knock on the door strikes terror into the hearts of all residents because you have no candy. When it's eggs and flour time for you. The music of composer and director Frank Laloga on the soundtrack of his Lady in White, which was released back in 1988 and starred Lucas Haas, Len Caruo, Alex Rocco and Katherine Helmond. Set in 1962 offstate New York, it follows a schoolboy played by Haas who, after witnessing a ghost of a young girl, becomes embroiled in a mystery surrounding a series of brutal child murders. It's a movie that many are still discovering, It's a gem of a film that once discovered stays with you forever and the score is always a duel of a soundtrack with numerous themes and wonderful lyrical interludes that fully support and underline the narrative. The music is such a delight to listen to in the movie and entertains you away from it. Lady White turned out to be one of the best ghost stories of the 1980s and has stood the test of time well. Some of the story was based on and around the director's childhood growing up in a small town with his Sicilian American family, with the director including little homages to the memory of his father and grandparents within the storyline. The film is scored with an affection that shines through in the music, composed of adding small nuances or melodies, and utilising a kind of a Mickey Mousing scoring approach in certain sequences. The music and images are in total unison and complement each other wonderfully. Now let's hear some more of this specific music of the composer and director, Frank LaLogja, from Lady in White.
2: Thank
0: This is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
1: Cinematic tales about Halloween have very often included comedy elements. Maybe it's a way of putting the watching audience at ease. Movies such as The Fearless Vampire Killers or Pardon Me But Your Teeth In My Neck Yes, that was the full title, or if you would prefer Dance of the Vampires, as it was called in the UK, are prime examples of horror movies containing a humorous side. "Phyllis Vampire Killers is a 1967 comedy horror directed by Roman Polanski, written by Gerald Ruck and Polanski, produced by Gene Gatowski, and starring Polanski himself with his future wife, Sharon Tate, alongside Jack McGowan and Alfie Bass. In the film... A doddering vampire hunter and his bumbling assistant travel to a small mountain village where they find the telltale traces of vampirism. The assistant becomes enchanted by the local tavern keeper's daughter before before she is promptly abducted. Determined to save the boxer maiden, they confront the undead count in his castle. score for the film was by Christoph Komeda and is a lesson of how to score a movie. The music is punctuating, underlining and enhancing the storyline. Comida utilising odd-sounding chord performances alongside symphonic flourishes and jazz influenced compositions to create a unique and highly original soundscape. Komeda and Pulaski agree that the movie should be scored sparingly. In fact, after the main titles, the film has no music for at least the first half an hour and it is in this opening 30 minutes or so of the film the audience are introduced to most of the leading players. Komeda's score does not return until to the scene where the hunchback, who is the Count's assistant and bodyguard, takes the vampire to attack the innkeeper's daughter Sarah, played by Sharon Tate, as she takes a bath in a tub that is overflowing with bubbles. Unbeknownst to the girl, the vampire killer's assistant Alfred is spying on her through the keyhole of the bathroom, but he becomes embarrassed and looks away momentarily. As he does, Sarah notices that the snow is falling indoors. And looks up to see the evil Count coming through with Scarlet to abduct her. All that is left after he has gone is the bubbles that are now tainted with blood, and Alfred panics and runs off to find his mentor. Comedian's music, which is a variation of the core theme, is highly effective within this scene and gives us a sinister, chilling atmosphere which is really aided by the utilisation of the Japanese bamboo flute, the shakuhachi, an instrument used in a lot of James Horner schools. The score elevates the comedy and underlines the horror elements of the movie. The score, as a whole, is certainly striking and in the forefront of proceedings. At other times, It has a much more subtle and understated persona. Christoph Komeda was a great talent and his working relationship with Polanski was a fruitful one. Soon after he would score the great horror film Rosemary's Baby for the director, which was a far greater success than Fearless Vampire Killers.
0: Delving into the greats of film music's past, this is The Archive with Jason Drury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
1: Horror movies are like any other genre. There are some good, some bad, and some damn right awful. Well, the next film falls into the final category, although... Because of its director and certain cast members, one might have thought it would have been a lot better. Exorcist 2 The Heretic was released in 1977 but almost instantly bombed at the box office even with the likes of actor Richard Burton on board and director John Borman at the helm. The one saving grace was The Score which was by Ennio Morricone. The film was supposedly a sequel to The Exorcist but there were so many things wrong with the movie that it was hardly ever spoken of because critics and fans alike think it is way unworthy to be included in the Exorcist series. The Heretic starred Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louis Fetcher, Max von Sydow, Katie Wynne, Paul Henry and James Earl Jones. The film's story being set four years after the original film, with its focus being upon the now 16-year-old Regan McNeil, who is still recovering from a previous demonic possession. At the time of the film being released, Marconi was mainly associated with European movies. American filmmakers often tried to engage him for a lower fee than the American or British composers, and understandably, Mark Conney was not happy about this and saw it as a slight on his musical capabilities, thinking that American directors were treating him as if he was worthless. Although the following year, Mark Conney would impress American audiences with his score for Days of Heaven, which garnered the composer an Oscar nomination, and a year later, in 1979, the composer scored the TV movie Bloodline. The music for the heretic is a somewhat complex work, the director utilizing voices and unusual instrumentation to bring to fruition a sense of mystery and foreboding. But there are few looting and even romantic sounding cues in the form of Regan's theme and interrupting melody, a letter which contains a haunting violin solo with the former showcasing the unique vocal turns of Edadell, also, two of the more melodic moments to one of the best scores composed ever for a very bad film. The remainder of the score is an unsettling and innovative musical journey with compositions such as the ominous Jackin sounding and chaotic Pizzasio and the deeply troubling Little Afro Flemish M.A.S.H. and Exorcism are all triumphs of composition but still resonate with big fans of Morricone because of the complexity and originality of each of the pieces. The composer creating harrowing and overworldly sounds via choir, screams, crying, moans and wailing, building an atmosphere of apprehension and uncertainty that gives considerable support to a lacklustre script and movie. The composer's score is a more of an unnerving listening experience away from the images on screen. The use of whispers and half-heard words in the track, seduction and magic, are affecting and memorable. It was integration of a tribal center ritual in Trexas' night flight being a stroke of genius. Most movies that we associate with Halloween are categorized as horrors. You know, the bump in the night, the walking dead, the undead, The don't go in that room warning, and the if it's dead and still walking scenario, it's a horror. But there are other movies that are just as scary, but not categorized such as a horror film, but are looked upon as sci-fi movies with elements of horror included. One such movie, which is a little unsettling, but I’m not sure why it's a little off-a-war film called them. The film was released. The film was released in 1954 and is a movie about giant ants who end up living below an American city. The ants, we find out, have become mutated because of atomic bomb tests that were carried out in the deserts of New Mexico after the Second World War. The ants grow to become giants and begin to maraud the countryside, killing humans and livestock. The film opens in the New Mexico desert when police sergeant Ben Peterson and his partner find a child wandering and soon discover that giant ants are attacking the locals. FBI agent Robert Graham teams up with Ben and with the support of Dr. Harold Medford and his daughter Dr. Patricia Medford who together destroy the colony of ants in the middle of the desert. Dr. Harold Medford explains that the atomic testing in 1945 developed this dangerous breed of mutant ants. But we discover that the two queen ants have flown away and they are starting a huge colony in the underground flood control tunnels of Los Angeles. When a mother reports that her two children are missing, the team begins searching for them. And after finding the colony and rescuing the children, they destroy the ants. Or do they? They escaped once before, maybe they do it again. It's been 569 years now, so if they did, they are soon taking their time to come out of hiding. You got this rubbish. Dreaded by Gordon Douglas, the movie starred James Whitmore, Edwin Gren, James Onnes and John Weldon. The music for this horror sci-fi flick was surprisingly the work of renowned composer Bronislaw Kaper, who would later score movies such as Mutiny on the Bounty, Tobruk, Butterfield 8 and The Glass Slipper. The movie, made in black and white, had the look and style of the universal sci-fi horrors of the 1930s and 40s and as you respect has become somewhat dated, but it is a still entertaining yarn with a dramatic school form. Vonislau caper.
0: This is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
1: piece of music that strikes terror into many people's hearts. The Dracula's Theme, composed by James Bernard for the 1958 Howard production, Dracula. In the 1950s and the early part of the 1960s, sci-fi and horror seemed to go hand in hand. Well, mainly because every film that was made showed an alien or aliens coming to Earth and being blasted out of the park by us peace-loving humans. Before they could even say, we come in peace, they were literally in pieces. Thus said, aliens dished out a catastrophic response who, I would imagine, were pretty annoyed at the reception they were given. As the 1960s progressed, horror and sci-fi seemed to go their separate ways, sometimes reuniting, but normally staying away from each other, with the genres, being more defined as sci-fi or horror. The 1960s is when British studio Hammer began to come into its own. A house of horror, as dubbed by many, produced some memorable and effective gothic horrors. And it was during this period that the studio established itself as the masters of the macabre, a title they still hold to this day. They had brought Count Dracula back to life in 1958 in aforementioned Dracula, or the horror of Dracula, as the title was in the United States, and then proceeded to kill him off, and then resurrect him in various ways, right up to the mid-1970s, when things started to get a little batty, and the studio decided to place the Count in modern-day London. Well, Hammer's outdated idea of London in the 1970s, at least. The plots were awful, and the dialogue was even worse. You know what I mean, man? Can you... I'm not doing that. I'm sorry John, I can't do that line, I'm sorry, really sorry. However, before the fiasco of both Dracula AD 1972 and the satanic rights of Dracula, this series of films were popular and remained period affairs with one standing out, Dracula Prince of Darkness, the second outing of Christopher Lee as the Vampire Lord. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, along with the studio's Brides of Dracula, are without doubt the best of the Hammer films, where Dracula was concerned at least, even if Brides was not really about Dracula. The central character, as portrayed by Lee, seemed even more sinister and evil in Prince of Darkness, and the movie contained some quite violent scenes, but it is by now 1966, eight years on, from Lee donning a black cape for the first time. Christopher Lee went on to appear in a further five Hammer Dracula pictures, but was making it quite clear that he did not like the direction of which the storylines were going. The studio were making the films more sexual and included more and more nudity. Lee even went to Italy to work with filmmaker Jess Vanko in Il Conte Dracula in 1970, because he felt that Vanko's vision of Dracula was closer to the original story by Bram Stoker. Sadly, although mostly true to the original story, the film failed to be a success. with music from the 1973 film Il Conte Dracula which starred Christopher Lee as Count Dracula. We've sadly now come to the end of this archive Halloween special. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and a big thank you to John Mansell for writing most of the script of this show with me adding some bits here and there. <laughs> I'll leave you with another film that features Count Dracula, features Count Dracula, of a much lighter tone. 1979's Love at First Bite, directed by Stan Dragotti and starring Jules Hamilton, who playing a charming, friendly and somewhat naive Dracula who falls in love with a modern woman, played by Susan St. James, after he notices that she reminds him of his long-lost love. The Count has been evicted from his castle in Transylvania and decides to take in the sights and disco sounds of the Big Apple, accompanied by his assistant Renfeld, played by Arte Johnson. The score for Lover first bite was composed by Charles Bernstein, who is better known by horror whole enthusiasts for his scores for Anup Rinell Street and Stephen King's Cujo, amongst many others. His score is at times highly European orchestral in its nature, but also utilises disco percussion tracks, which at the time were a popular trope in film scores in the late 70s, early 80s. The film is somewhat dated now, but if you have a chance to watch it, if you can find it, it is still worth a watch. And the soundtrack is a treat too, with Bernstein treating us to dramatic flavours and European-themed music was bolstered by V, disco beats and groovy interludes, which are complemented with solo panel performances and tender romantic themes. Vampires and various other creatures who come out at night are associated with Halloween, and though some may operate at other times of the year. But often, more recently, Halloween has become a time to eat candy and poke fun at the monsters and spirits that venture out on All Hallows' Eve. As the films such as Hocus Pocus and Monster Squad, On All Hallows' Eve, witches Fly and Werewolves Howl at the Full Moon. But does not faze those pesky ankle biters who still Knock on doors shouting trick or treat. So here now to finish this special Halloween edition of the archive on the Cinematic Sound Magic podcast is music from the 1979 horror comedy film Love at First Bite, with the original score composed and conducted by Charles Bernstein. Thank you very much for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed today's show and has not put a stake between us. And until we meet again, from me, Jason Very is take care. And happy Christian Autumn Festival. That's come kind of to create controversy. You may not hear this show off after Halloween anyway.
0: Tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sin Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show. And write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to T Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio T-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at CinematicSound.net.